Do keep your Bibles open at that passage we've just read together. A prevailing notion of philosophy that has gripped really the Western world for a long time, it may be diminishing now, but that philosophy is that we live in a materialistic and mechanistic world. Ever since the Enlightenment, there has been a kind of philosophical division between the world of facts, the world of tangible things, and the world of values. A sharp disconnect between the public and the private elements of human life. Matters of public interest are binding on us all. Science, autonomous human reason. Matters of personal preference include religion, morality, and values. In the post-enlightenment world, We've not succeeded in providing people with a sense of their worth or value or of a life that has meaning and purpose. Everything is the result of matter plus time plus chance. There is, as someone said, no grandeur anywhere. People are simply naked apes with genetic responses programmed into their DNA. To get beyond the humdrum involves, for these philosophers, a leap from the world of facts, that is, facts as defined by the guardians of our culture, of course, to the world of faith. This upper-story world of faith has no connection to the world we actually live in, the world of facts. Now, it's interesting that as we read these words of Jesus that we've just done this evening, We're moving into a world that is very different from that kind of post-enlightenment world. The world of facts and the world of values or the world of faith are, are linked together. They are linked together absolutely in this passage of Scripture. Here we find... We find Jesus in a conversation with his friends. There are so many indications in the text that this is a record of a real conversation. The back and forth, the, uh, the disciples' uh, inability to get what Jesus is saying to them, the fact that Jesus rebukes them and so on, these are not things you would make up. There, there is too much about this conversation that is real. And there is Jesus. He is with them. He is actually there. He, he is not the Christ of faith. He is the Christ of fact. He is present with them at a meal. He has washed their feet. He has eaten with them and drunk with them in this upper room. And he's in conversation with them. And now they're walking on their way. Perhaps by this point, they are nearing the temple precincts or are in the vicinity of the temple. Perhaps it's there that Jesus will pray, or perhaps they will move past there towards a garden where eventually he will be betrayed to his enemies. And he is talking to them there about there, about the upper story world. He is connecting the world of facts and the world of faith, the world of the here and now and the tangible to this world of the spiritual and the eternal And he's doing that while he is still with them. He talks about sending another companion to them. He he uses personal language to describe this other companion. But we discover that this companion that's coming is neither material nor a mechanism, but a person. He is a person, but he is pure spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. That's the background to the passage that we've come 
to this evening. And as he talks to his friends, these are his last instructive words to his friends before he's arrested and then tried and then put to death. He talks to them about the values. We might call them the upper story values, the values that transcend space, time, and history. And you can summarize them in three words that you will immediately recognize. The words are faith, hope, and love. We begin with the first of those values, the value of love. Jesus has told them that he's going to the Father, and when he goes to the Father, he will come back to them with a gift. That gift that he will bring or send to them is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Spirit will be their constant companion, a companion with them every bit as real, every bit as as personal, every bit as intimate and helpful as the Lord Jesus himself. He's also told them that by his going to the Father, he will open up a way by which his own people, his disciples, may come personally and directly to God. They will make their requests to God. They will be able to ask God things and for things in Jesus' name. Verse 24, the verse immediately before the passage we read. And in their asking, in their coming to God, in this sense of directness, of access to God, they will find that their prayers are heard and their joy will be full. Now that it does not mean, that does not mean that there is no need for a mediator. It does not mean that Jesus is somehow now redundant in the work that he does. The controlling verse of this whole section, I suppose, in dealing with these questions is in chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, no one comes to the Father except through me. And in verse 24, we are to ask, in his name. He remains the mediator. He remains the go-between, the one who introduces us to God and the one who brings God to us. We come to the Father through Jesus the Son. And as long as we remain, as long as they remain in the Father's presence, they have direct access to him in prayer. But now as he has said that, he introduces that, he then goes on to describe the way he's been teaching them. Look at verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, it's very true to say that during his earthly ministry, Jesus said many things to his disciples that confused them. Perhaps even when he was speaking directly, he confused them. He often rebukes them, in fact, for misunderstanding what he has said. He rebukes them for their being obtuse. On one occasion, for example, Peter said to him, Lord, please explain the parable to, to us. And he said to them, Are you still without misunderstanding? An element of frustration there. Are you still without understanding? After they have been with him, some of these disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus had told them explicitly, he said this to them, as they came down from the mountain, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And then the disciple, Mark, who's recording the story, says, 
but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him what he meant. The son of man will be handed over, he'll be killed, and when he's killed, he will rise again. It sounds very straightforward to us. They could not make sense of it. And they regularly, they regularly saw things, heard things that they did not understand at the time. And only after the resurrection happened did it make sense to them. But yet they record these things in their account. In other words, here's an indication of their absolute transparent honesty. They didn't try to make themselves look good. When I tell you a story, there's an illustration in which something I've been involved in, I clean it all up so that you just see the best part of it. And you'd think they would do that, but they didn't do that. They were absolutely transparent and honest. They record their own faults and failures and the records they kept. Now, it's true that sometimes Jesus did use figurative language, veiled, enigmatic, cryptic language. The parables are like that. The disciples came to him once, where we, we read in Matthew 13, and they said to him, why do you speak to us in parables? And he answered them like this. He said, to you, it is given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to them, that is to the people at large, it has not been given. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that the reason he spoke in parables was not to illustrate his sermons. I mean, when a preacher uses an illustration, he hopes that it will at least connect somewhere in people's experience so that they then begin to understand the text better. Jesus explained that his parables were not meant to illumine people. They were actually an act of judgment on people. Confirming them in their unbelief, Jesus' parables confirmed them even more in their unbelief. And Jesus goes on to say, for example, that truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, or to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The parables were part of the judgment on people who were hard-hearted, close-minded, and spiritually obtuse. And the disciples were among those people. Very often they did not get what Jesus was saying. But now the Lord is talking about a day. The hour is coming, he says, when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and so on. So he's now pointing them to a future moment. In that day. Normally, in that day refers to the end of the world, to the end of history to the parousia, that is the coming again of the Lord Jesus from heaven. But is that the point at which Jesus is referring here when he says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. In that day, you will ask in my name, and so on. Is that the moment? Well, in many ways, that final day is preempted by the resurrection day of Jesus. What's going to happen at the parousia is that Jesus is going to be manifested to the whole world. Every eye shall see him, and those that pierced him shall look upon him they pierce. And when he returns, the dead will be raised. We will be raised. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, we will be given bodies like his glorified body, raised from the dead, made like him 
With him we will rise on that day. There is the completion of our salvation as with glorified bodies we rise to meet our glorified Savior to share in his glory. And then in the moment of that moment, the earth, the earth, the universe is transformed and made ready for us to live in for billions of years without end. That is the finality of our salvation. What happened on the day of resurrection was that that final salvation was inaugurated. It was inaugurated when the first of us, Jesus himself, the firstborn from the dead, rose from the dead and began the process of that final resurrection. First of all, he rose and then he calls men and women to rise into spiritual resurrection. People who were dead in their trespasses and sins rise to spiritual resurrection. And that spiritual resurrection is the phase one of the final resurrection. The resurrection is, first of all, the resurrection of our souls and then of our bodies. So there's a sense in which that final day is brought forward to the resurrection day. And you can say this. The the later New Testament writers put it like this, that believers, believers are those who belong to the ends of the ages. The ends of the ages have already come upon the believer in that right now we take a share in that final resurrection because God has raised us from spiritual death. Did you understand that? Phase one of the resurrection. And that is, I think, what Jesus is referring to here. In that day, I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and and so on. And in the moment of that day, they will have joy when they see the Lord. Uh, Herman Ritterboss puts it like this, the great joy of seeing him again put an end to the torment of uncertainty that they, feel, that they felt. And when Jesus returns with the Spirit, he will no longer need to speak to them in parables. He will no longer need to speak to them that language. The Spirit will reveal the Father to them more directly. And you can see evidence of this in the Gospels. When Jesus comes back after the resurrection, he speaks to them And he tells them all that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. He teaches those things to them. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. With the help of Jesus and then with the help of the Holy Spirit, it all made sense to them. It wasn't that they were given new truth that had not been revealed before, but their eyes were opened and their ears reattuned to this truth. The truth that the Spirit would tell or make known, as we saw back in verse 12 and verse 15. He would make it clear to them. The gift of the risen Lord to the church is the Holy Spirit. And through the apostles, the Holy Spirit, who is truth, gives the church the word of God that we have before us this evening. Now look at verse 26 again. In that day, that is in our day, in these last days... You will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now, 
you wonder, what does he mean there? We're wondering, just like the disciples wondered, what does he mean right at this moment? He's already told them that they are to pray to the Father in his name. He's already been teaching them that he is the mediator. He is the one who goes ahead of us. He prepares the way, and we come to the Father through him. His mediation, his help, is absolutely essential. And he's taught us that. But having taught us that, he now teaches us something else that we need to learn. And it is this, that as a result of his going to the Father, as a result of his being our mediator, in and through him, you as a believer have unfettered access, direct access to the Father, so that there is no need, Jesus is saying, no need of me to appeal to him to answer your prayers. In other words, Jesus' very presence in heaven is enough. We sometimes have this picture. It's painted sometimes by preachers, and perhaps I've even done it myself wrongly in the past. The idea that somehow or other, Jesus is all the time saying, Father, will you listen to this one? Father, will you hear what they're saying? Father, will you grant them their request? Father, Father, Father. He doesn't need to do that. What he's saying to the the disciples right at this time is, I don't need to do that. When I go to the Father, my presence there opens the way of access to you, and you may come to your heavenly Father directly, directly. You have acceptance in God's sight, and you have access into God's presence. But he tells us something more here. He he tells us something that we need to hear this evening. He says that we have direct access to the Father now, you see. Because the Father who was once against us because of sin is for us because of Christ. The Father loves you. The Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Beloved brother and sister this evening, your heavenly Father loves you. He loves you in Christ. If you know and love the Lord Jesus, your heavenly Father knows and loves you. You should know that. He loved you so much he sent his only begotten son into the world so that you might be saved. He loved you so much that on the cross, he demonstrated his love towards you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And now that the Son has done the cross work, now that the cross is a matter of history, now that our offense to God's holiness has been removed by the Lamb of God, the Father loves you because you love Jesus. He loves you. And these religions, these aspects even of Christian religion, that make the Father so distant, so removed, so impenetrable to our gaze, those elements, those forms of Christianity are so, so off the the wall here. Listen to Jesus. Your Father himself loves you. So I don't have to get involved. You can go straight to the Father. On the basis of all that Jesus has done. John told us right at the very beginning of this gospel. 
that to those who believe in Jesus and who received him, God gave them the right, the authority to be children, sons of God. That is, with access straight to God, belonging to his family, you may go to the Father in Jesus' name. So what a, what a, what a legacy to leave them. To know that the Father himself loves you. There are times, you know, you may feel unlovable. There are times, you know, when you may feel as if nobody cares, nobody loves me. Nobody. My mother used to sing this to me when I was a little boy, and the tears would stream down my face. She would sing, nobody loves me, nobody cares. I think I'll go and eat worms. Big, fat, juicy ones. We thin, skinny ones see how they wriggle and squirm. And I would say to her, Mommy, Mommy, I love you. I love you. If I had a tear comes to my eye, even just remembering or singing that, I think she liked to see the effect it had on my tender heart as a child. But you know, you need to know that your heavenly Father loves you. Well, the second value that Jesus talks to them about is the value of faith. Let's move on to to look at uh, verse 29. Now that Jesus has finally answered his disciples' question, they understand that he is going to the Father and returning. Verse 28, he tells them that straightforwardly. I came from the Father. I've come into the world. I'm now leaving the world and going to the Father. You can't get any more straightforward than that. And so they say, listen to these disciples here. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Oh, I'm sure Jesus was very encouraged by that comment. But do you notice what they're saying? They're saying uh, they feel he's no longer talking in riddles. They feel as if he's been quite convincing in the way he's answered their questions. And they're really impressed by the fact that he knew what was on their minds. And so they affirm their faith. But I think there's an element here that we can't ignore. And it's this, that they are far too quick in professing their faith. Don Carson, in a little commentary that he does in this section of John's Gospel, points this out. They're claiming at this point, they're claiming to know more than they know. What are they claiming? Look at verse 29. They're claiming, we believe that you came from God. On what do they base that claim? Listen to them, what they say. Now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. In other words, they're building their theology of who Jesus is on Jesus' ability to know what was on their minds, something that Jews would associate with the divine, of course. And, of course, it is impressive. But actually, that was the least important thing Jesus had said to them all night. It really was. In fact... They even assess Jesus' performance in this regard. Now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. You can almost hear them drawing a sigh of relief and thinking to themselves, now you're talking. 
But in fact, Jesus knew more than just what was on their minds. Jesus knew what was in their heart. He could not only answer their unspoken questions, he could assess how strong their faith actually was. Listen to what Jesus says to them. He answered them. Do you now believe? Kostenberger in his commentary says this, that Jesus' question with thinly veiled skepticism amounts to a mild rebuke. That he he apes the wording of the disciples' comment and reveals both irony and exasperation. Do you now believe? I mean, it sounded genuine enough. It undoubtedly came from, emerged out of a, a real love for Jesus. But it was an immature faith, it was an insufficient faith, it would not withstand the onslaught that was about to unfold upon them. And so he warns them. Do you see how he goes on to warn them? Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. In spite of their love, in spite of their professed faith, they would abandon him at his moment of greatest need. Peter has already been warned that of his own impending collapse. His resolution would dissolve. But all of them, all of them, every last one of them would prove unequal to the task. And when Jesus was arrested, every last one of them would melt into the darkness as fast as their feet could carry them. If the Lord needed their support, he didn't get it. If the Lord needed their comfort, he didn't get it. If the Lord needed them to pray for him, he didn't get it. He was left alone. And their profession of faith would flounder on the rocks of his arrest and trial and execution. Listen to what Jesus says. You will be scattered, he says. Echoing the words used earlier in John chapter 10, where the sheep are scattered by the wolf. The disciples, Murray Harris says, are not shepherdless sheep, but Jesus is a sheepless shepherd. Now, in Mark's gospel, Mark, when he's recounting this, points us to the oracle in Zechariah chapter 13. Then Zechariah 13 verse 7, we hear this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, John does not quote that. But there are two things from Zechariah that he does quote. Mark, in his account of this quotation, precedes it by using the words, you will all take offense. That is, you will all be scattered because of me. You will fall away because of me. John has said in verse 1 of this chapter, Jesus has said to his disciples, I have said all these things to you so that you will be kept from falling away. In other words, he uses the same language as Mark. And now again, he uses the same words, scattered, the scattering. In other words, John, though he doesn't quote from Zechariah, 
uses the language that Mark is using and applies it to the situation. They would be scattered. Well, there's a great picture, isn't it, of us? Our faith fails us. Our faith is often immature. We make great professions when days are going well, but when things start to go badly, we go to pieces. Isn't that the case? Isn't that the truth? I cannot profess now what I would do in other circumstances. I can imagine things that would shake my faith to the core happening. It is foolish to profess more than we can at this moment. Right now, I'm trusting, simply trusting, trusting in Jesus. That's all we can do at this moment, isn't it? Their faith failed them. But if his disciples' faith would waver, his would not. And I'm grateful that we have him as our representative. Here he is, cut off from his friends. Eventually cut off from the land of the living. You would think he would have caused to doubt or disbelieve. But notice, notice his resolute language here. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The faithfulness of the Father is contrasted with the faithlessness of the disciples. The Father's presence and support were assured to him. He was confident in these. He will go forward in that faith. Now, I think of somebody here, a bright person, who wants to say to me, well, what about Jesus on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, one of the rules of quotations from the Old Testament in the New Testament is that wherever there is a quotation of one part of a passage, you are intended to go and read all of it. You go back to Psalm 22, where those words come from, and you will find in that psalm an absolutely blow-by-blow description of everything that was going on, both on the cross and around the cross of Jesus, as he hung there. Everything. And Jesus, even as he quotes those words, wants you to go and read it for yourself. And in that psalm, the one who is, bru- the one who is hanging there, pierced in his hands and feet... Surrounded by people who are baying for his life, gambling over his clothes, delighting in his nakedness, his exposure, his weakness, and his suffering. The one who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on that cross there in Psalm 22, immediately goes on to remind himself to rehearse The fact that God is faithful in you, he goes on to say, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And the one on the cross goes on to say, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. 
Jesus is signaling to you that though he is conscious of the Father's wrath coming upon him, that he has not lost for one moment the reassurance of his Father's word that he would never leave him nor forsake him and that he is clinging to that promise, whatever it appears to be in the surface. The Lord Jesus is the believer. He is the believer. And I cling to his robes. His faith is stronger than mine. And he points me to a heavenly father. He, it was this faith in God's word that Christ went to the cross with all the shame, pain, and loss that was involved. Well, the third thing, the third value that is spoken of here, of course, is that of hope. Jesus says to them, I've said these things intentionally, out loud, so they can be reported publicly. I've said these things to you, that in me you might have peace. There are two expressions here, two spheres of existence that that apply to, to most of us in this room who are Christian people, all of us who are Christian people who I presume are most of us in this room. And they're the expressions in me and in the world. Look, look, look at the flow of what Jesus says. In me, you may have peace. Where does our peace as a believer come from? Does it come from anything inside of me? Am I at peace with myself? Do I always have a sense of peace in my heart? No, actually, often I'm troubled at heart. Often there is, there is a dis-ease in my heart. When you go through a trial or a trouble or a crisis in your own personal life or in your family life or your business life or church life, when you don't know how it's all going to to fall out. You feel a dis-ease in your heart. You would, you would have to be absolutely solid like rock not to feel anything, not to feel the burden, not to feel a sense of anxiety. So where does my peace come from? Well, in the first instance, from the Lord's own words. I go back to his, that's why I need to be reading the Bible, because I need to be going back to what Jesus says here. He, he has told the disciples everything that's going to happen to him, part of the plan of God. And if he trusted in God, that God would deliver him, and everybody's mocking him, that they won't be, he won't be delivered. And then he's raised again on the third day, as he said he would be. Then I go back to that, and I think, that's where my, that's where my peace lies. I don't know what's going on right now. I can't, I can't talk myself out of the way I'm feeling right now. I can't get my mind cleared enough to think positively about anything that's going on in my life right now, but I can go back to this and say, look, Jesus talks to his disciples here. I'm overhearing him speaking to these men. They're feeling the way I'm feeling, but he will come back to them. And he will come to me. In me. In me you may have peace. That in spite of knowing their failures as he did, he loved them to the end. Your Lord loves you to the end. And he's realistic. Do you notice? 
In me you have peace, in the world you'll have trouble. We sometimes talk about the Great Tribulation. And we think of the Great Tribulation as that intensification of evil that will take place immediately prior to the coming again of the Lord Jesus. That may very well be the case. There may very well be an intensification of evil in the last of the last days. But when we talk about the Great Tribulation as it's described in the book of Revelation, it is great, not because of its intensification. It is great because it lasts a long time. It lasts from when Jesus goes to when Jesus returns. We are in the Great Tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. If there have been periods in our history as a nation when we have been spared tribulation, that is a blip in history. It is not the expected norm for the child of God. It is a feature that in this period, there will be trouble for the church. But take heart. Here's the third element. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And in going to the Father through his death and consequent, subsequent resurrection, Jesus has overcome the world. The world threw its worst at him. And yet by the very same suffering and death, the Savior defeated, he crushed Satan, the prince of this world. You know, in the movie, The Passion of Christ, a lot of the real gems are in details that you don't immediately see. When Jesus is agonizing in the garden over going to the cross, there is a moment where he comes to that decisive surrender to the will of the Father in going to the cross and almost as a almost as a kind of oversight the camera pans to his foot as he moves from that sight to go to the cross and as he moves he treads on a serpent snake and crushes it by his obedience in going to the cross he crushed Satan, he defeated the prince of this world. The world persecutes the church. It inflicts on God's people its petty irritants and its massive scourges. It insinuates its lies and entices it into sin. And yet, that's what the master endured. And if that's the way the master went, should not the servant tread it still? In Christ, by living by faith, we partake of the powers of the age to come. We belong to that latter days people whose hidden life transcends space and time. It is hidden with Christ in God beyond the reach of harm. John, who wrote this gospel, wrote later in his life, the victory that has overcome the world is our faith, faith that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And in an old hymn, 
an old hymn that says these words, As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely those who love his name shall triumph in him too. That is our destiny, to share in the triumph of Christ, even as now we share in the trouble that comes from knowing him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table now, we pray that in your mercy and grace, you would feed us with living food, the food of Christ himself, that we may eat, partake of him by faith as we claim the promises, and that this table would be to us a means of grace, of strengthening us in our Christian lives, ministering to our souls, and feeding us in anticipation of the day when we sit with you in that heavenly banquet, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.